Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You've already heard a lot said. I hope that you are chewing on some of what you've heard this morning. Hang on with me for a little while longer, and I want to share with you something from the Word of God before we go home today. I want to just read the passage for this morning's sermon from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptized you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I wouldn't really call that a feel-good passage of scripture. I don't feel lighter in my step after reading something like that. But it's also in the Bible for a reason. It's not a, a scripture that we can just afford to gloss over. Now, the tension I feel as I preach this sermon series called 100 Things You Should Know from the Bible is that every passage I come across that I want to preach from is so full and so rich with stuff that I could literally go on for hours talking from them and none of you would want to listen to hours of preaching on one given Sunday. And so what I think I'm going to start doing is preach an amount that I think is adequate for Sunday morning and then just stop there. And if there's more to be said, I'll try to say it through another means. Maybe, um, maybe a blog entry or an email I send out to people just to kind of round out your appreciation of an understanding of the passage. But for this morning, I want to move through an emphasis on one particular aspect of this very rich passage, and that is this word repentance. And if you're new to Harvest, you know that these, these illustrations are done by an artist in our church. He and I work each week together to discuss the essence of the sermon And then he draws a pictorial um, depiction of what he believes captures the heart of the sermon. And you'll understand why I think this is a great illustration for the concept of what repentance described by the Bible truly is. So let me get moving here. Back in June of 2008, President Bush was invited by Queen Elizabeth II to come to London and have tea and sandwiches with him at Windsor Castle, which is still one of the official residences of the British royal family. Now, the Queen had not invited anyone to Windsor Castle in like 26 years, at least not a U.S. president. Ronald Reagan was, in fact, the last sitting U.S. president to receive such an invitation. And so, obviously, President Bush, on his way out of office in his farewell tour of Europe, decided that when he's in London, this has to be one of the stops. And so that's what he did. He visited with Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip, and they had a wonderful outing where they they walked through the historic Windsor Castle. They ate some tea, uh, they ate some uh, sandwiches and cake and drank some tea, and it lasted for a very short time, really, a couple hours at most. And there were a lot of photo ops, you know, photographers were everywhere capturing this historic moment. And then it was over. It was a brief news moment, and that's it. Or at least that's all that we saw. But that short visit captured in those photo ops only tells the finale of a story that involved over a thousand people and at least three months of planning. See, when a president goes to visit another place, 
his visit isn't the, the beginning of the story, it's the end. There were so many people who journeyed out to London three months in advance of the president's arrival, scoured everything, scouted it all out to make sure that everything on the London side of things was prepared for both the president's happiness and safety or security. In fact, three months before he came, the Secret Service sent out what they call presidential advance team. These guys look like something out of a movie. They come out in teams, like lots and lots of guys. They all are armed. They're equipped with, among other things, Motorola Bluetooth camera sunglasses. So that as they walk the entire route that the president will go in his visits, every stop of the way, they're walking around staring at stuff, and everything the agents look at is fed wirelessly back to a, a multi-screen control center in Washington, D.C., where other Secret Service agents are looking at everything to anticipate all the places where a sniper or an assailant might be hiding. I can tell you that that's just one of the small measures done to prepare, and it involved a small army of, of people giving their full-time effort. And when I say small army, I'm not exaggerating. 904 people from the Department of Defense, 600 people from the armed services, 250 Secret Service agents, 205 White House staff, 103 people from the U.S. Information Agency, 44 people from the Department of State's 18 senior advance office staff, and 12 sniffer dogs were all commissioned three months out of this visit to devote their full-time attention to preparing London for our president's arrival. The total price tag for this one visit for tea and crumpets with the queen was a whopping 26 million U.S. dollars. Now, I don't know how you feel about President Bush politically. President Obama is, in fact, actually more well-protected than President Bush was, so they keep setting new records for the amount of expense and effort expended to prepare for our president to go anywhere, which is crazy because if you look at the French president's limousine, it's a convertible, and he stands right out in the back seat and waves at people. So we must have just an incredible amount of paranoia, and maybe rightfully so, because President Bush got like 500 death threats every month while he was in office. And so a lot of expense and effort is invested in making way for the president to have a safe and fruitful journey when he travels out of the country. Now, I share that with you because the practice of going ahead of, a, ahead of state uh, in, in, in front of a, a very important person to prepare the path ahead for their arrival is a very ancient idea. Going back even centuries before the time of Jesus, it was common practice to send out large teams of people to make ready the, the, the proposed pathway for the visit. In fact, some more wealthy and powerful kings would even send corps of engineers ahead of them to tear down hills and mountains to level the roads, repave the entire way. It was like a blessing if the king was going to come your way because the roads would just get better for a while. They would send people through the towns and villages to clean up all the garbage, to make sure all the ugly animals were slaughtered and out of the way, that people were reminded to wear their best clothing so that when the king walked through his kingdom, he would see people who were like, oh, dude, I was like in my underwear. They're ready for him. They're lying in the streets in their finest clothes, and he gets this idea that my kingdom is awesome. Even though it may not tell the accurate story, it was important that everybody knew the king was coming their way. One of the most important parts of these advanced teams was the herald, the person who represented the voice and authority of the king and would walk through the town ahead of everybody shouting at the top of their lungs, the king is coming, make ready. So this idea of the word herald is a very important word and it's a very important office. It's somebody who in advance of a king's arrival prepares everybody for that encounter which is coming. Now, what's interesting is John the Baptist, when he's introduced to us, we're told that this is what his entire life was about. Wouldn't it be great to have that level of clarity on why you exist, why you were put on the planet? John the Baptist, from before he was even born, an angel visited his father in the temple, and these are the words the angel delivered to him about the purpose of John's life. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
What I see in that is with great clarity, John the Baptist was given one mission in his whole life. And that is this. Jesus would soon follow him and inaugurate his public ministry. John's mission was to get those same people ready for a divine encounter with the Son of God. In a way, then, John the Baptist is the quintessential evangelist. Because really, that is the work of what evangelism is. And that's a, that's a word that's gotten a bad rap in America, I think. The word evangelism evokes some really negative ideas, both outside the church and inside the church. I mean, when I talk about it outside, people have really negative ideas about what that is. They picture, and so I'll tell you what evangelism is not. We don't believe that evangelism is about debating people into a corner until they have nothing to say to refute us. Evangelism is not clobbering people with intellectual prowess. It's not self-righteously judging the moral decisions of others. That's God's job to cast judgment on how we live. If he, in fact, made us, that's his prerogative. It is not our job to point the finger of, of, of judgment at other people. And that certainly is not what evangelism is about. Evangelism is also not about exporting or imposing a subculture or a way of life on people. Evangelism isn't about getting people to stop smoking, stop clubbing, stop having sex. Those things God will eventually do if they are harmful to us. If they dishonor and grieve him, God will from inside out transform a person to walk away from those things. But evangelism is not the exporting of a way of life. What is evangelism? Then we learn about that through the ministry of John the Baptist. It is being the hands and feet of God in sacrificial loving service. That's one thing that we can do to prepare the way for God. Another thing that evangelism is, it's being true to the character of Christ, reflecting and representing him with integrity, so that when people see our lives, we are not an affront or an offense to them, a stench in their nose, but when we are the ones God uses to speak about Jesus, it's easy to hear that from us, because we represent his character well. Now, that's not all evangelism. There's clearly the, another part of it that is indispensable, is the clear and and unambiguous proclamation that Jesus Christ alone is the way to eternal life. That he is the only one by whom human beings will be saved. I can't backpedal on that. That's not something out of sensitivity to others who disagree. I can pretend that's not true in my life because I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the only way. And we must proclaim that without confusion and without apprehension. But evangelism also involves other ways by which we prepare for the coming of God into people's lives. I believe that a sovereign God has his own timing for when he enters a person's life. There is a divine appointment coming for so many people where God in his sovereignty will come and visit them and have an encounter that they cannot argue against. I had such a moment in August of 1984 at a time in my life when I wasn't exactly looking for a spiritual life. I was looking for a girlfriend and God had different plans and he overwhelmed me with such a visit from him that in my cynical, rebellious, misguided youth, I could not reject him on that day. He had an, a divine appointment for me that August, and it changed the entire trajectory of my life. And God has that plan for so many people. I have no idea when that day is coming, but I know that it's my privilege to prepare that person's heart for when that encounter comes. I believe that that is the meaning of what evangelism is. It's a preparation and a proclamation for that day when Jesus decides to visit and win the heart of a person. So what's interesting to me then, what's startling almost, is the simplicity and the starkness of John's message. Because when he goes out to preach, this is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we might regard the kingdom of heaven as a wonderful thing. Angels flying, we sit on a cloud with a harp, butt naked, just whiling away the years. But the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is actually a threat. It's the idea, you better return the library book because it's almost due. I mean, that's, that's the mildest one. But the idea is, repent, because the day of accounting is soon going to be upon us. 
A day is coming when you cannot stand unaccountable for the choices you've made in your life, for your spiritual standing before the one true God. And I thought, well, if that's your whole mission is to prepare people for God, why would that be your message? In today's atmosphere of seeker-friendly, you know, being sensitive to everybody who's outside of our, our particular belief system, that would not be a very welcome message. And I'm not sure that it's popular to preach a message like this in churches ar- around America today. But somehow in, in, his, in his Holy Spirit-led wisdom, John the Baptist believed that the best possible preparation for the human heart to meet God is to go through a process of repentance. And so since his mission was to prepare people for God, his only message was repent because God's coming and repentance is an inescapable, necessary turning of the heart to make somebody ready to meet their God. Now, again, the word repent is another one of those words that conjures up very negative, dark feelings for a lot of people. For some, it's a negative word because it reminds them of their moral failures. These things that have happened to them, things that they have done, which they've tried to fight against, and they just can't seem to win. For so many across the states today, the word repent reminds them of besetting sins, habits, things like addiction to pornography, that no matter what they do, no matter how badly they feel about it, how sternly they make a New Year's resolution, I will not look at that foul garbage again. They find themselves by January 4th or 5th already looking at it, and they're so sick of themselves. And the word repent, rather than being a welcome word, just reminds them again what a failure they feel like. For others, it's a negative word because it reminds them of the finger-pointing, self-righteous accusations of others who, thinking they were speaking in God's name, pointed a finger of blame at others and said, you are dirty and far from God, as though that were something they chose to do, all-knowing. That without God invading their life, we're, we're looking at them saying, your lifestyle is disgusting, without realizing what's really troubling is that they're far from God. And so for some people, they grew up being judged by spiritual people. I shouldn't say spirit. They grew up being judged by religious people. They were made to feel small, dirty, unredeemable by the very people who were saying they need to come to God. And so the word repent for a lot of people in America is actually a very painful and difficult word to hear. But I believe that the word repent is actually a very positive and life-giving word. You might think, here we go, this is going to be the ultimate exercise in spin. It's not. I think it's going to be the ultimate exercise in properly defining a word that has come to be very misunderstood. The the Greek word from which we derive the English word repent. I normally don't show off my Greek knowledge because I don't have much, but this is an important word. It's the word metanoia. Metanoia. Um, The word metanoia, it kind of sounds like paranoia. Noia means mind. Meta refers to changing or transforming something. And so literally the word repentance is from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind. Change one's mind. Now that's very telling, and I know you may have heard that before, but in that definition, there is the profound idea of what repentance is and really should be in the way that we practice it. That's why I think this is a good illustration Because there's something inherent to this Greek word metanoia that speaks to, it more than suggests it, it's this idea of a radical and decisive turning of direction, an about face. And that's what this drawing seeks to illustrate, is somebody turning, and as they do so, the dark tentacles of sin and guilt and shame and failure that cling to everybody are beginning to fly off. That as we go through what God calls repentance, this deep, profound changing of our minds and hearts, that along with that change comes a freedom from the things that weigh us down and make us feel like we're unworthy to walk with God. This is the life-giving truth behind the word repentance, is that it represents a radical and genuine changing of the direction and trajectory of our lives. I think defined a little more simply, here's how I might describe repentance to somebody who doesn't know what it is. Repentance is changing my mind so that I agree more closely with the way God looks at me 
and at the world? That's, it's so simple to me. Repentance is about changing my mind to agree more deeply with God. Not to defend myself, to excuse myself, but to say, God, if this is the way you define truth, then repentance for me is to say, you're right and I'm wrong. The way you say things, the way you define things, the standards you set, those are right. And I will not fight you. I will submit through the changing of my mind to agree with what you say. You know, a lot of people think repentance is only about remorse, feeling really bad about what you did. That's part of it. But if that's all you ever do going through life, feeling bad about yourself, in what possible way will that bring a redeemed life? All it will do is rehearse the fact that you stink really bad. Who needs to dwell only on that day after day and expect that something called joy eternal will spring forth out of that heart? The good news of the gospel is that as we repent and we change our minds to agree with God, He sets us free from the things that hold us down. You know, when I was in seminary, I once went door-to-door in my community, just knocking on random doors and saying, hey, do you have five minutes? Can I talk to you about Jesus Christ? I was surprised by a couple things. One, I was surprised that 90% of the people were willing to actually talk to me. I couldn't believe it. I was expecting to get, like, baseball bats and stuff like that. But everyone's like, I've got nothing to do. Sure, let's talk about Jesus. And we just stood at their doors and talked. And I was asking them a number of questions, but here's one of the things I was surprised to learn. The majority of people I talked to, at least in that community, and I suspect throughout the the United States of America, they believed somehow that we are born innocent and destined for heaven, and if at the end of our lives our good stuff outweighs our bad stuff, then somehow we'll sprout wings, get a harp, and go to heaven. In other words, we are destined for heaven unless we do something so heinous that we disqualify ourselves and go to hell. And so I asked many of these people two questions. One, where did you get that idea and where's the cutoff line? What kind of act disqualifies you from heaven and sends you to hell? And they said stuff like, you know, like kicking a baby in the head till it dies and, you know, like... Uh, you know, injecting poison into random strangers on the street, mass murder, serial killing, and all. And so they were describing the absolute outer edge of the worst things human beings have done. Adolf Hitler will go to hell. Stalin, Mussolini, some of these guys will go to hell. And they also mentioned some of their their political opponents that that also will go to hell. You know, but I thought, wow, that's it then. And so I, I asked them the other question, where did you get such an idea? And the answer was pretty startling. I don't know, I just feel like That's the way it should work. Now, I get why they're saying that, because from a human perspective, minus any revelation from God, that kind of makes sense, I guess, because that's the way everything else works. You study hard, you get a good grade. You work hard, you get to keep your job. You work hard, you get a little money, and you have a lot of money, you get to buy nicer things than the guy next to you. That's the way everything down here seems to work. And so we get this idea that maybe redemption works the same way. You work hard, you pay for it, and and you get it. Or maybe it's just this way. Like everybody will get it. And unless you do something really bad, if God is nice, then, then arbitrarily we just decided if he's fair and nice, everyone should go to heaven and only the real jerks should go to hell. I understand where that thinking is coming from logically, but they had no answer for where did you get such an idea? And the honest answer is they made it up because they want to live in a universe where that's the way it works. And they really believe that if that's the way it works, they're better off. What they don't realize is if there is such a place as heaven and hell, we didn't make it. We didn't send contractors to construct heaven. If there is a heaven and hell, it's the domain of a true God. And if that God made it, he gets to determine where the cutoff line is. And if that cutoff line is defined by a holy God, it's going to be just a little higher than most of us are able to do. I just attended my son's high school freshman orientation with him. That just freaks me out to even say it. (laughs) To my son's high school orientation. And they were talking about college admissions and the fact that some might try to get into Harvard, but it's not for everyone. Out of 36,000 Uh, applicants, every last one of them were either number one or number two in their graduating class. Every one of them got at least a 35 on their ACT. They're all the top of the line. And so he said, even if you want to, 
the cutoff line is so high that the vast majority of highly qualified, self-confident applicants will be bonged hard by that school, rejected. And so that's the stark reality that I'm living with, is if this whole thing exists, I don't think we have the freedom to simply pull something out of our rear and go, this is just the way it should work. If it really exists, there is a way it actually does work. And that's the thing that troubles me, is when I look at the Bible, the way we think it works is different from what God says is the way it actually works. The truth presented to us in Scripture is that human rebellion, otherwise known as sin, is a serious problem with serious consequences. It's not Britney Spears going, oops, I did it again. It's not that casual a thing. It is behind every foul thing we see around us. Because of sin, I need to lock my door at night. Because of sin... I have to think about the horror that someday my child might come home and say, Daddy, I'm pregnant, and she's she's like 16. Because of sin, I live in a world so filled with pain and darkness, it's overwhelming if you really pay attention and think about it. That's the reality of where we live. And into this reality, John the Baptist said, you cannot just make it up as you go. You need to know that God sees things. He has defined it truly, and has an answer for us. I believe the first act of repentance in anyone's life is to change our minds about what makes us righteous. What entitles us to think that someday we will spend our lives forever with God in His dwelling place. In fact, it's even to change our minds about what makes us think that we are good people. Raise your hand if you've ever murdered anyone. Would you just... Okay, raise your hand if you've ever just kicked a baby hard in the head just to see how good it would feel. Anyone? Come on, nobody? All right. Uh, how many of you have stolen from the offering basket at church? Anyone? Because that's another one of those things everyone said, if you steal from church, you're going to hell for sure. Like, it's these weird rules. So all, by that, that standard, all of us are good people. We pay our taxes. We help old ladies across the street. We hold the door for people at Walmart. If I find money on the floor, I I say, does this belong to anybody? I don't just go, all right, candy bars for me. We try to do what's right. And so there's this idea that, that goodness, our goodness, is defined by the things we try to do. And the truth is, if we compare ourselves to those other people who are morally reprehensible, we'll always come away smelling good. But really, the, the measure is not against one another. The true definition of what is good is God. And by that standard, none of us really has a hope of a passing grade. I know that sounds unfair and messed up, but that's simply the truth of it. And unless you want to come join me on the stage and say, I I think that's ridiculous. I'm almost as good as God. I really am. I've brought nothing but the, the smell of roses and goodness and smiles and giggles to my world everywhere I've gone. If you want to say that, I'm willing to let you take the, the, the mic and give it a go. But I think the honest truth is most of us know that God's way of looking at it is actually true. Now, these Pharisees and Sadducees, who were the religious leaders of Jesus' day and John's day, The Pharisees were the ultra-conservative, the right-wingers, and the Sadducees were the ultra-liberals, the left-wingers. And the only thing they really had in common was they were utterly convinced that just by virtue of being born Jews, they were redeemed and they were God's chosen people. That they didn't have to do anything other than have the right genetics to be redeemed. Add to that this, this other component, which is they were very religious people. And so they were very faithful in the observance of different rules, the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. By that standard, they were heads and shoulders above everyone else. And so they, they felt doubly protected that by being born Jewish, I'm one of the good guys. And because I'm always towing the line and following the rules, I get extra credit. I'm an extra good guy. There's no way that my redemption can ever be called into question. That's why it must have been so startling for everyone gathered at the Jordan River when John points out all those guys, the ones they looked up to as the religious leaders, and said, hey, who told you guys to come? 
Now, I don't recommend that to most young pastors as a strategy for growing their churches. Hey, why do you, why do people like you come here today? That's not the point at all. He knew their hearts. He knew that the reason they were coming was because this was becoming a popular thing to do. They were adding one more feather in their cap of feeling like they were on the good team, the winning team. But what, here's what John saw in them. He said, do you really believe that your birthright or heritage makes you one of God's people? And that your religion makes you good enough for God? What you don't realize is neither one of those things offers you any righteous standing. The only thing that makes a person good is if God declares them good through mercy. Genetics cannot redeem you. All the religious effort in your lifetime cannot redeem you. Redemption happens only by the declaration of God. And so he says to them, when John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded, brood of snakes, what do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snakeskins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And John is saying a very important thing. He is shattering the conventional wisdom of most people about these matters. He's saying, just because you were raised in a Christian family or born into a Christian nation does not make you a Christian. Neither does the fact that because of your upbringing in Sunday school, you've tried so hard to follow the rules. That also does not make you a Christian. The only thing that makes anyone a Christian is that they have trusted the mercy of Jesus Christ to be enough to cancel out, to release them from the darkness and the weight of their sin and the sin of the world. That's it. That's why it's called good news. Bad news is you've got to work really hard all your life and maybe you'll make the cutoff when we announce the final team. Any of you ever try out for a sports team? Remember that excruciating period after your tryouts where you were second-guessing yourself, doubting, will I make the cut? Is that good news to find out that's the way eternity works? Did you try real hard and maybe, just maybe, you'll make the cut at the end? There's nothing good about that news. And because our God is so good, he says that if you will agree with him about the way reality is and you will trust in him alone, he will do for us what is impossible for us to do for ourselves. I really believe that the first act of repentance is to change our minds and agree with God about where righteousness comes from in the human being. Now, here's proof, I think, that that's right, that even after my conversion experience, even after agreeing with God about all of that, I don't automatically become a morally upright person. Can I tell you that since becoming a Christian in August of 1984, don't gasp, but I've struggled morally. I know I'm up here preaching, and it doesn't mean I'm perfect. Not by a long shot. I have really struggled with certain things. And I wish that becoming a Christian, even by grace of God, would change the kind of person I am. And little by little, that is happening. But the truth is that repentance, the changing of my mind to agree with God's standard of righteousness, is an ongoing journey for me. I find that repentance is not just a once-for-all life thing, but it is an ongoing journey where on a regular basis, I need to bow before God and say to Him, I've got it wrong, Lord. I started living in certain ways because I got caught in some wrong thinking about life, about the way things work, about my reasons and justifications. I want to change my mind and agree with you that there is no good excuse for what I'm doing. There is no compelling circumstance that made me do it. There is just me and the darkness inside me that wants to burst out. And I made choices one at a time that have taken my life down this road. Help me to genuinely, deeply change my mind about what I'm doing so that I can be freed again by your mercy. Most people think of repenting over our sin as simply being remorseful, getting to a point where I feel really guilty and really badly about what I've done. But I truly believe that's not enough. It's not enough. 
It is to say, I will no longer justify why I do it. I'll stop pinning the blame on my husband or wife who should be helping me more to be better. I'm going to stop pinning it on my childhood and my upbringing. All those things may be contributing factors to why your life has different challenges. But at the end of the day, there's somebody who's walked every path you've walked and done it differently. And so we just decide, I will stop finding reasons why I can't help being this way. And I will agree with God that simply I was made for better than this and that God is able to transform me if I'll trust Him and submit to Him. But this is not what I was made for. And I will stop justifying it or learning to live with it. This sin in my life is a problem and it has severe consequences. And I will change my thinking to agree with God that I will not take it anymore. I won't just sweep it under the rug, find a way to sleep at night while I'm in that condition. I want this burden to be released. And I think that's a good imagery to think about repentance and redemption. It's a place to lay our burdens down. Look at the incredible response. I don't understand this. How does a guy dressed all crazy in the wilderness way outside the city? I mean, you've got to trek through rocky soil to get there. And he's out there going, repent! God's coming and you're going to be hosed. Repent. And I want to know how that guy with crazy hair, a crazy, you know, camel's hair. We're not talking about a nice Egyptian camel's hair blazer. We're talking about an itchy, disgusting, smelling garment from head to toe. Itchy. A leather belt. He eats locusts and wild honey. That is not a yummy snack. Okay. How does this guy garner such a response from everyone in the surrounding community? There is no real human explanation other than this, there is something about the way God has designed humanity so that our hearts cannot bear the burden and weight of guilt forever. There's something about the way he made us. We have this inert, innate, inherent need to offload that burden. Carrying it each day gets heavier and more oppressive. And there's something that cries out in the human heart, do something about this. Do something with this burden. Let me illustrate that with a scenario for you. How many of you have a hard time driving at night because you get sleepy? It's, it's challenging. Um, let's imagine that one night you're driving kind of late, you're really sleepy, and you're driving down this residential road, and all of a sudden you hear, boom! And it's like a bump, and you're like, oh, I don't know what that was. Maybe a log, maybe a telephone book that someone left on the road. But you're tired, you're a little scared, so you just keep driving. You get home, you go to sleep, Next morning, you wake up and you turn on the news and you find out a little child was killed in a hit and run on the very street that you drove down. You run out in a panic to look at your car and sure enough, on the side of your car is a little dent and a clump of skin and crusted blood and you know what's happened. You have hit that child and killed them. Not really thinking that lizard brain kicking in, you rush out and take the garden hose and you hose down all the blood and everything from that car. You bring it to the local body shop, you get the dent knocked out, and you wait around for the police to call you. But weeks later, no one knows it was you. At some level, there are strong mixed feelings, relief that you got away with it. But there's another feeling growing in you, isn't there? It doesn't matter if you're a religious person or not. To simply be human is to have a moral capacity that defines how you respond to the burden of guilt. And as you go day after day, the more it becomes clear you got away with it, no one will discover what you've done. You would think you'd be elated. Oh, I don't have to spend the rest of my life in jail. I don't have to face that kid's parents. Thank God even, you might say. But something will happen inside of you. I guarantee you that, not because I know you, but because I understand how God made us human beings. The only way you will keep walking with that burden is either number one, to so numb and dead in your heart that nothing gets to you again. That's the way some people have chosen to live. That the, the, the cry of that heart's burden is so great, the only way they can sleep at night is to decide outright, I care about nothing. Nothing matters. Nothing is important. There's no future. There's no history. There's only this moment. And even this moment has no value or meaning. Existentialism taken to the nth degree. 
And that's the way some people, perhaps even some people in this room, have dealt with that burden. But deal with it you must because you can't just ignore it. The human heart does not permit it. And the only other strategy for dealing with that growing weight is to lay it down somewhere. Some people try with a psychiatrist, but really, how much of a relief is it when another fallible human being goes, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. It's all right. And for a moment coming back from that office, you feel better about yourself, but it's not lasting because the burden's still there. Did you ever read Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Telltale Heart? That's such a secular but beautiful depiction of the human nature. This guy is living with an old man in his house, and just the look of him offends him. He gets so sick of looking at the guy, he decides, well, I'm just going to kill you. You tick me off, and he murders the man. He dismembers him, cuts him into pieces, and he buries the parts under the floorboards of his house. He thinks he's going to be happy because now he's gotten rid of this annoying old man, and he's, he's got the crime, he's gotten away with it. But the, the idea of the story is, one day, he starts to hear the beating of a heart. And it's the heart of the man he's murdered, his victim. And from under the floorboards, he hears it. Boom, 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 boom. And it gets louder and louder and more insistent with every day until he goes mad. He can't handle it. And it's not the heart that's beating. It's his guilt and this oppressive weight of it all pressing down on him. That is how humanity is made. You cannot just pretend it doesn't matter. You will either kill your own soul to numb it beyond any feeling, or you will walk around carrying that ridiculous, impossible weight everywhere you go. Either way, you're dead. You're nowhere near the kind of life and freedom for which we were made. Isn't it wonderful news that through the profound but clear and simple act of repentance, of accepting responsibility, agreeing with God, changing our minds to no longer bury it or numb ourselves to say, God, what I have done is an affront to you. It is so far less than I was made for. I've tried to walk around living with the justifying, but no more. I changed my mind to agree with you, God. And I ask now for the release that is promised to those who will agree with God about their moral condition. There's no easy believism here. There is no routine scripted talk. You just say these five words like a Harry Potter spell and everything will be better. No, repentance is real and it's about an intentional, radical, changing of the direction of our thinking and of our lives and of our will. And God meets us in that. And he does what we are powerless to do for ourselves. He makes us actually clean. You know I'm telling the truth because you have done lots of good and it hasn't canceled out the bad you know you have done. You've added some good to the world, but that's in a separate ledger than the fact that you still have this burden pressing down on you late at night in the quiet and stillness of the dark when you're being really honest with yourself. It's there. And I I want to invite you today into the good news that for those who will repent, the freedom and liberty of God is so available even now. This is the good news of the word of God with which I'll close. If we confess our sins, in other words, if we simply agree with God about ourselves, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise is not available to you in any other road you'll try to walk. Now, I'm not the person who can say that with all authority, but I believe with all my heart that that's the truth. You will not find that forgiveness down any other road. But it is available to you today, even now. And I think it would be a serious mistake to preach on repentance 
and not give us some time simply to be quiet and still before God. I'm not going to ask you to get on your knees and beat your chest and make a big show of remorse, but I'm going to ask us together, at wherever you might be, maybe for you, where God wants you to repent, to, to change your mind and agree with him, is that your basis for declaring yourself good is off. It's not working. And he says, why strain all your life to prove you're a good guy when I can declare you good by mercy? Maybe that's the first act of repentance that God is inviting you into today. Maybe for others, and especially, and I don't want to stereotype it, if you grew up Asian, you did not really learn a healthy way of dealing with your failures, did you? You learned about your badness at the end of a switch. Whack! That's what bad kids get. And maybe you're riddled or saddled with this idea that God's like that, that your failures only indict you and make you a really rotten, worthless person. There's no hope for you. And so repentance is a really difficult thing for you to grasp. Maybe today God wants you not simply to grovel in regret, but to accept his invitation to change your mind about yourself and your moral condition. He said, God, no more excuses. No more justifications. I own this and I ask you to take it from me. It's that simple. So wherever you may be, I want to invite us into a time where, and, and I'm just asking us to close our eyes. Forget about the people around you. Forget about if anyone's watching you. Just, let's just cast the whole world away from us for now and just get quiet before God in whatever way you know how to do. Even if you don't have a relationship with God, I'm going to ask you to take advantage of a couple minutes of quiet and peace, which are rare in our world, and spend a few minutes at least reflecting on what you've heard here. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. Listen and spend a couple minutes responding to what you've heard and to what God may be saying to you. I'm going to invite the praise team to slowly make their way up. We could just get a little bit of music going so we're not distracted by the sounds around us. We're going to spend... You know, not an hour. We're going to spend about five minutes, maybe a little longer, just in getting in front of God. Can we do that together today without distraction? Let's go before him right now. And I'll call us back together and close for us in prayer. You know, as you continue just to have a time of response, I feel led to say this. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ will not really be good news to our ears unless we're willing to change our minds and accept the reality of the bad news. Sin is a real problem and we live in a universe with consequences. Why waste your whole life experimentally proving only that you can never wash that stain off your own shirt. What God is saying, this is the good news, is I've wanted to just give you a new garment. It's not God's will that any of us should waste our lives trying hard to be good people. But that He would give us a new birth. He would declare us His people and day by day transform us. That's life. That's why it's called good news. And if that's not the way you thought of this Christian faith, would you let God change your mind? Because this is the true Christianity. And I just want to invite some in this room who may not have a relationship with God, that in this coming year, you will at least give him a fair hearing. Listen for him. If God lives, don't you want to know? It's all that could be asked of you. Don't just dismiss him and reject him out of hand. Listen. I believe God is reaching after every one of us in this room. And I just want to give us another couple minutes, just a brief time, now quietly continue to respond to him. Would you join me as I pray?
God, we know that there is such a thing as good and evil and right and wrong. And so much of the time we find ourselves on the wrong side of that equation. And it seems every day we're alive. Along with the good that we do, we heap more weight on our shoulders. And so I pray that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ will produce liberty and joy for everyone here. Lord, help us to repent. Wherever our thinking is wrong, where it's leading us down a road we don't want to be, come and change our thinking. Cause us to agree with you. And we pray, God, that you would do for us what is impossible for us to do for ourselves. Lord, I pray for those who may be very far from you, perhaps even uninterested or antagonistic towards you, that in the year 2011, you will continue reaching after them, making yourself seen and heard. And I pray for those of us who have been trapped in harmful cycles of guilt without freedom, of remorse without redemption, that you would teach us how to truly repent. To have a radical changing of our mind and our life's direction. And to trust you for the power to make that turn. We pray, God, for each of us. That this year will be a year of new beginnings. Of powerful and good changes in our lives. And that as you are redeeming us. Our world and the people we love around us just glow brighter because of you. You are the light of the world. We pray, God, that through your life in us, we also would live as bearers of light. Come now and accept our repentance and honor your promise and set us free in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.